Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And this is the fourth and final episode of our Dorchester series. Once again, the Dorchester Conference is the premier conservative conference in Oregon, and this year took place on Mount Hood on April 12th and 13th, 2019. And our guest today is Alan Alley. And if you haven't heard that name before, Alan is a stud. (laughs) (laughs) To use the technical term. Use the technical term. Alan ran for governor of Oregon twice. Uh, One time he lost to Chris Dudley in the Oregon primary. Chris Dudley, the former NBA player. He was was the Republican nominee for treasurer prior to that. He was former chair of the Oregon Republican Party, and he has been involved in Oregon politics for a couple of decades. Pretty much since day one when he got here. That's right. And so at the last few months, years, I'm not sure, Alan has been working on PERS once again. (laughs) Told you it was coming. (laughs) And he is... Seriously, an expert on the matter. Immediately before this podcast, he had given a 45 minute to an hour speech on PERS with slides and charts and all sorts of stuff. So, this is going to be well, I'm not going to say it's the last time we talk about PERS, but it's the last time that we have something dedicated for PERS. I, you know, I, I think that speech he gave was just a big warm up for a podcast. He knew, he knew we were going to grill him with the tough questions. So he wanted to really be ready. Yeah, but exactly. I, Alan is a really good guy. He is a, um, he has at least two things in common with me, which is that we are both Pennsylvanians, go Keystone State, and we both have a deep and undying love of Taco Bell, which he, he frequently posts about on his Facebook. But Alan is, as James, as you had mentioned, he's definitely had his finger in just so many pots. If it's small businesses and startups here in Oregon, obviously he's very involved and continues to be involved in the political scene and is just able to think of ideas and think of ways to discuss things that just haven't been out there yet. And so we had a real honor talking to him. Yep. And if you want to learn more about Alan, you can hit up his Wikipedia page. It's uh, pretty thorough about all the stuff that he's done the last few years. So without further ado... Here is Alan Alley. Our guest today is a former Oregon Republican Party chair, Alan Alley. Hey, guys. So we mentioned in a previous podcast, Alan Alley's name. Use your name in vain. Uh Uh, (laughs) Uh-oh. That's usually not a good thing. (laughs) We had... Lost a lot of listeners. Yeah. (laughs) We had Xander Almeida. And see, I got his name right this time. There, yeah. Uh, Congrats, Xander. We had Xander on the show. And Xander is part of a young Republican crew who worked to try to get some anti-LGBT civil union language out of the Republican platform. And you were you were the chair at the time. I was. Yeah. Yeah. So I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about that from your perspective. Well, it'd be interesting. I haven't heard Xander's views of it, but when you chair the Republican Party platform convention, people break off into groups that they feel passionate about. And I mm-hmm. think one is family values or something like that. And mm-hmm. there's there's all these different groups. And Xander and uh, several other young Republicans went to the group where they lobbied to get this language removed. I can't even remember what the language was. And they failed in the group. And if you think about it, those groups are the people that are most passionate about that issue from one way or another because 
you can only participate in that one group and then you all come back together and then ratify the whole platform. So it was late at night. It might have even been early in the morning and I saw Xander and the other folks and I'm somebody that really wanted to be inclusive as a party chairman to everybody. The Republican Party should have a very big tent and the fact that these young people came out and devoted their time to do this, I felt really responsible to make them feel like they were part of the process and part of the party. Sure. And they said they had failed in committee. And I said, well, why don't you bring it up when we ratify the whole thing with all 160 people the following day? And they said, can you do that? And I said, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. It's a parliamentary thing, how you do that. And uh, they did their work and they brought it up the next day. And we passed it. I can't remember exactly what the vote was. It was it was a clear majority. Hmm. It wasn't like a super majority or something. Right. I do remember we did a standing vote because the voice vote wasn't clear enough. And it was a really interesting thing to have these very conservative Eastern uh, Republicans from the Eastern part of the state stand up and say, no, or yes, I want this language removed. And you had to very visibly do it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a secret a ballot. Secret it wasn't right, a voice yeah. vote. It was you have to stand up and be counted. It passed, and, and that was a great moment. You are a, uh, you're a former tech executive, and you've been very successful in, in that community as well. And then you had gotten, in, you got yourself involved in politics. You got, you ran for ORP chair. I know you ran for governor a couple of years ago. Was it that desire to kind of see a change in the Republican Party, or what was it that drew you to be crazy enough to throw your hat in the ring? <laughs> so I actually worked for a Democratic governor. I was deputy chief of staff for Governor Kulingoski, and that was the first formal political thing that I did. Mm -hmm. And the governor called me and asked me to do this. I said, you need to understand something. I'm a Republican and you're not. (laughs) And he said, yeah, but you understand technology. You understand higher education, energy, transportation. I need somebody with that background. And it was a great experience. It was eye-opening for me. It was interesting to see politics from the other side. I got included in every Democratic meeting that they had. I had a great opportunity to see the way that office worked and what you could do and what you couldn't do in that office. So that's what got me involved. Then I ran for treasurer, ran for governor, walked across the state, did a 400-mile walk across Oregon. Oh, wow. Got to meet people in eastern Oregon at a pace and at a quality level that you wouldn't ordinarily. And then the Oregon Republican Party, uh, the chairman was retiring, and I thought I had something to offer, so we went ahead and and did that. Got it. Were there a lot of good Taco Bells that you found when you walked across the state of Oregon? (laughs) There were no Taco Bells. (laughs) There was a lot of good food. You got to go run for governor of a different state. There's no Taco Bell. There's no Starbucks. There's no nothing. There's a lot of of great people and a lot of home cooking, um, which which was equally awesome. Got it. So the other thing we wanted to ask you about is what do you think that the direction the Oregon Republican Party should go at this point? And without... Not talking too badly about <laughs> current yeah. leadership. I think they're doing a great job. But wh- what do you think that, that we, what direction should, should we be going? You know, I think the speaker that we just had upstairs talked about authenticity. Mm. And I think we need to be honest and authentic about our values and our vision. And not everybody's going to share every single value and every single thing. But if you don't, people don't trust you. And to affect the changes that we need to have here, 
people need to trust you. We've had people that run, and I one of the things I've said over and over and over again is Republicans who run statewide do a very good job about getting Democrats to feel good about not voting for us. <laughs> and true. what that means is you get them to the point of you ask a downtown Portland Democrat, what do you think of Alan Alley? Well, he's a good guy. Do you like? Yeah, I think he, I think he'd be a good governor. Are you going to vote for him? No, I'm not going to vote. Are you crazy? No way, right? So we we get them to that point. And I think if you go back through the gubernatorial candidates that we've had, and many of the statewide candidates, we get to that point. And I think what we've got to do is get them to the point of, look, Oregon has some very serious problems, and the Democrats are structurally unable to address them, like the public employee retirement system right. problem. No Democratic governor, no Democratic legislature can address that problem. Politically, they can't. Hmm. It's only going to be a Republican. And I think you have to do that from a very authentic I have a different point of view than what the Democrats have, and that point of view is necessary in order to take the state forward. Sure. Well, you just gave a 45-minute speech on PERS. We actually, a couple episodes ago, spent 45 minutes on PERS. Do you think you can just kind of give us the cliff notes of what you talked about a few minutes ago? Yeah, the essence of it is is it's incredibly complicated. It's very difficult to understand, but the most important thing is you need to focus on the cash flow liability that we have for PERS. And what I mean by that is there's a forecast every single year of how much money we have to pay to retirees, both existing retirees and new retirees. It's very well documented. It's the basis of what they calculate the actuarial liability of, and that's the thing you hear about. But that cash flow over the next 30 years is $235 billion. Wow. wow. So when people say they've got a proposal and they save $2 billion, like Kate Brown's new proposal is she's going to come up with $2 billion of new taxes, fees, and fines over the next 14 years, that's not $2 billion of an $80 billion liability. It's $2 billion of $235 billion. Of cash flow. So yeah. it's not meaningful. Wow. And until people wake up and say, look, <laughs> we have a $235 billion cash problem, yeah. and we have to address that problem. They're never going to solve it. So there's a lot of histrionics, a lot of hand-waving, a lot of kabuki theater, you know, noise and this kind of stuff, but they're not fundamentally addressing the basic problem. Right. What are, do you think, if, if either if you were to run for something in the future or the candidates that you would look to support, what types of action would you hope gets taken that, like you say, can both in a concrete manner and in a meaningful, in an actual impactful manner, actually work to solve the problem and doesn't just kind of serve as a, a head fake to, oh, hey, look, here's $2 billion. Right. There, we figured it out. I think what it would take, it, first of all, I think a Republican governor could do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the Republican governor has to say nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. I'm not signing a single bill until we address this PERS problem. And step one is to say we're going to look at it from a $235 billion liability. Step two is we're going to move all new employees to a 401k type mm -hmm. system. And then step three is this is the funding sources we're going to use to pay down this liability that we have. And it would probably blow up Salem. 
<laughs> right? And you will probably have a recall vote and it will, the whole world will come unhinged. But whoever it is has to have the strength of character and understand the problem deeply enough to say no. It's going to be Scott Walker 2.0 from that standpoint, yeah. I think. So we are getting kicked out of our room. It's only it's been a short podcast. Alan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Um, I guess using the room for something else. So. Great. All right. And we're back with uh, Alan Alley. They let us give our, get our room back, and Alan was kind enough to stick around. Uh, evidently, Congressman Walden was having a secret meeting in here with all of our microphones. Don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Nick, you had a question for Alan. Yeah, so uh, before we broke, you had mentioned that the work that it would take to have a serious PERS reform would come back and, and would likely result in recall initiatives, You know, a, a lot of ire, a lot of room for lobbying and special interest to kind of come in and work to undo the work that it took so much effort for for Republicans to get something passed in the first place. What would it look like to a stand up to that and try to you know hang on by whatever leverage you, you've got, and b what would it look like to craft the legislation in such a way so that the next uh, legislature can't simply just undo what just happened? Yeah, so I think one you would have to have Scott Walker type integrity to be able to weather the storm. There would be sit-ins in the Capitol. There'd be torchlight uh, marches because this is right at the core of the Democratic Party's base. And even though my proposal is you do not touch the retirement benefits that have been promised to people up until this point in time, if you're hired in. You're going to get 100% of your benefits, and if you hired in yesterday, we're going to carry you through on the existing mm -hmm. program. You only roll new employees to a 401k-type defined contribution. First of all, it would, it would be the integrity to stand up to it and have the moral strength of character to be able to defend it over and over and over mm -hmm. again. The second thing is the point about undoing it. Once you get this in place the next Democratic governor comes in and just negotiates it away, mm -hmm. right, and goes back to a defined benefit plan. There may have to be some lawsuit, basically, where somebody adjudicates that the state can't make promises in the future for something that they're doing today. And there actually is this concept. We're supposed to have constitutionally a balanced state budget. One could make the argument that by underfunding PERS, you actually don't have a balanced state budget. In fact, it's unbalanced by a couple billion dollars mm. a year. If it went to the Oregon Supreme Court, I think they'd say, oh, you're just borrowing money from yourself. And the state does borrow money. We float bonds for certain things. But I think it's in the concept of this legislature cannot bind future legislatures. Right. We're binding... 20, 30 yeah. legislatures yeah, into the future. Yeah. And I think you'd also have to do something like that. You'd have to get some kind of ruling that says, no, you can't have this defined benefit type plan. Mm -hmm. We had uh, Julie Parrish on earlier, and she was mentioning something about binding future legislatures and how that this is kind of a thing that you do by you take out bonds, which have to be paid out by future legislatures. And using the contracts clause of the Oregon Constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution to say, Oh, well, we made, we made this contract. Now you future have to yeah. pay for it. And that is a sneaky way to get around. Politicians can be sneaky. I've yeah. never, <laughs> I this is no idea. No, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's an interesting concept because you don't, in a corporation, you don't have something similar. Right. You know, you borrow money 
that might be a bond that you have to pay back over 15 or 20 or 30 years, there is no sort of governance provision that, oh, well, a CEO and a board of directors today can't bind a CEO and a board of directors in the future. But in effect, what you're doing is people that live and vote today are creating something that can't be overturned 20 or 30 years from now by Mm -hmm. people that are living then. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think fundamentally a defined contribution plan, which is where the government funds a certain percentage of your retirement, you can put in money that's invested, it's invested for you, is the only legal way that you can do this. I think fundamentally the defined benefit plan where you make a promise of something in the future probably isn't actually legal. It probably isn't actually legal for the government to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we had, like I mentioned, we had a 45-minute episode where we talked to another guy about PERS and basically came to the same conclusion where step one, get all new employees on a defined contribution plan. And step two, you just eat it. Yeah. There's there's no other way. The, we have tried a number of times over the last several decades to try to reform, to take down these benefits that were promised. And every time it's been struck down by the courts as violating the contracts clause. So as much as I would love to get out from under this $25 billion unfunded liability, or like you said, $235 billion. $235 billion cash flow, there's really no way to do it legally. No, and that's the thing is that most of the proposals that you see reduce $2 billion, $5 billion, $8 billion, something like that. I think Governor Brown's latest proposal, they what I saw reported was it saved $2 billion over 14 years. Well, yeah. $2 billion out of $235 <laughs> billion is nothing. nothing, Yeah, right? And it's a political stunt. To say, look what I've done. Look at all this stuff I've done. We've really tightened our belt here and we've done that here and we've come up with this creative solution there. And $2 billion sounds like real money. Well, it is real money, but it's a tiny fraction of the $235 billion cash flow. And incidentally, that assumes that you never hire another employee, (laughs) right? (laughs) It assumes that as teachers retire, you never replace them. As policemen and firemen retire, you never replace them. It assumes that no state employee is ever rehired, and it's $235 billion. If you actually start hiring people, it just goes up from there. And to your point from earlier, it's any governor, any legislature that tries to fix this that says, we have a real problem, we need to raise taxes to deal with it, because really that's the only way, yes. is going to be torches and pitchforks because (laughs) what Oregonians are going to realize is that their taxes are going up substantially and they are getting zero benefit from it. Well, and it's happening today. Yeah. Education funding over the last six years is up 40%. Wow. Enrollment is up less than 4%. Now, does anybody out there feel like education is 40% better than it was six years ago. And our high school our, graduation rate is 49th right. in the nation. Our, our, I, I'm married to a teacher and she started six years ago. Yeah. And she can tell you, it's like, no, it's not. But her funding from the state is yeah. up 40%, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Our class is 40% smaller. Do we, we have 40% more teachers, <laughs> no, right? We do not. Are there 40% more computers in the classroom? Are there 40? Mm. Is anything 40%? No. And enrollment is up like three and three quarters percent. And why? It's all going to PERS. And they won't say it, 
right? Yeah. It would be one thing if they said, look, we screwed up. We created a retirement benefit that we really can't afford. And we're going to have to pay for it going forward. And I'm sorry, right? But we created this benefit. We created this compact with the teachers. We are going to pay it. It's going to require this. Mm-hmm. And you can get through it. It's very possible to do this. But what's happening is they're raising your taxes. They're raising your fees. And they're not telling you that your services aren't going to get any better. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of quietly paying off the liability. But it's not enough. Well, and I think that was one of the interesting things is I think as before we really started our episode and doing the recon on it, any casual observer of the news is going to understand that okay, there's this thing and it's really expensive and it's a huge liability and we've kicked it down the road for several decades now. They're probably going to keep doing that for the foreseeable future. It is what it is. Oregon's still great. We still have the coast and Mount Hood and craft beer and whatever. I'm fine. I'm not going to go anywhere. But in January, there was, uh, I want to say it was a Think Out Loud piece on OPB that they had the city manager of Sherwood and he said, people come here because it's a really, really safe city, but we can't afford to hire more cops. We can't afford to bring on new policemen. We had to, I think, let some people go. And now all of a sudden, this ethereal 30,000-foot view thing is going to become very real when the city manager says, I can't do the things that my job demands that I do because all of the extra money that we have is going to PERS. How do you think that we as a party can best convey to a, a person who's not as intimately familiar with PERS as, well, not we are, you are, because <laughs> you're the expert of the three of us. I, James, James and I just kind of, we, we Googled some stuff. But, <laughs> That's what is, how I started. Hey, there yeah, you yeah. Go. But what is the best way to kind of bring home the message of this is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with? Well, I think there's an increasing awareness that it is a serious problem. I think mm-hmm. people are are starting to go, hmm, this might be bad. From my standpoint, if we could convey that structurally a Republican or Republicans are the only group that can possibly address this because the Democrats are beholden to the funding that comes from the very people that you're trying to right. work with here. Right. And it's a combination of a message of we are going to protect the contracts that we have in place. No teacher is going to have less retirement than what they have right now. It's only about going forward. And we can put things in place to fix this problem and be very transparent and truthful with the voters of Oregon. We can solve it. It's a solvable problem. It's on the order of one and a half to three billion dollars a biennium for call it 10, 15, 20 biennia. Mm. That's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money and it's going to require sacrifice. But I'd rather have it presented as this is a liability that we have and this is how we have to address it. Over time, we're going to be able to start funding things that we want to fund. We're going to have to tighten our belt in other areas. But just sticking your head in the sand and pretending that it's not real or going through all this, having a press conference and saying, we're going to save $2 billion, you're going to save $2 billion on $235 billion. You yeah. haven't done anything. There you go. I'll get you your medal, Kate Brown. Right. And if, and, if, and if we give her a get-out-of-jail-free card – and give her a, a pass on this thing, you know, that's on the citizens of Oregon. Yeah. But I think Republicans have to be truthful, authentic. We also have to be caring, and we also have to be compassionate 
for the people over the last 35 years that have gone to work for the state and made this agreement, and we're going to stick by that agreement. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. Well, I think we're just about out of time. We need to go eat dinner and Great. listen to Greg Walden <laughs> Greg speak. Walden. So thanks again, Alan, for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh -huh. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.